Open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes 5. While you're turning there, I want to share a prayer request with you that we just received this morning. Uh, Ingrid Veldheis received news that her mom passed away unexpectedly today, and we want to remember her in prayer. Uh, the good news is that her mother was a follower of Jesus and had placed her faith in Christ as Savior and King, and that's always a comfort to our hearts when a family member or friend passes from this life to the next, and it's clear where they have put their faith and where their trust and hope was. But for Ingrid and her family, it's a sorrowful time, isn't it? I was thinking this morning uh, that the Lord Jesus sets for us a remarkable example when he goes to the tomb of his friend Lazarus and he's there grieving with Mary and Martha, knowing good and well that within moments, literally, he's going to call Lazarus to come back from the dead. And yet before he issues that mighty resurrection command, he weeps. And you should never think that somehow your grief is, is lost on Jesus or that he would have a hard heart towards you as if, you know, he might say to you, come on, you know, you're making a big deal about this, eternal life's coming, and life's going to be good. No, he, he enters into it. And that's just one more evidence of what a great Savior he is. I'd like to ask you to pray with me, and uh, not only for God's blessing over our time in the Word here, but let's pray for Ingrid and her family and friends who will uh, carry the sorrow in their hearts and we can also rejoice for her mom that she's in the presence of the Savior. The, the word tells us to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. And that's true if you know him. And we believe it is true for Ingrid's mom today. Let's pray. Our God and Father, the news that we carry in our hearts um, makes us sorrow with Ingrid. We hate what death does. We hate the separation that we experience as loved ones pass from this world into the next. But that sorrow is softened when there is a clear work of salvation in the heart and life of that one we love. We don't always have this privilege of sorrowing with hope, but today we do, and we thank you for the hope of Christ would you draw near to Ingrid, and more than that, would you draw her to yourself? Would you cause her to know the comforting presence of the living God? As we were just singing, you are the high king of heaven. You are the one who has done everything necessary for our salvation. And in moments like these, we look again to the cross and empty tomb and praise you for the hope that you have brought to us through Jesus, your only begotten Son. So give Ingrid peace. Give her great grace. And even as the family uh, begin to gather, as they make plans for uh, a memorial or funeral service, whatever you lead them to do, let them know that you are with them. Now, Father, we open the word today again, with expectation, and we have so many needs represented here in this room today. 
but you have promised to speak to us in this word. You have promised to give us insight and understanding by the ministry of your Holy Spirit. And we ask for that. And we submit ourselves to this inspired, inerrant, authoritative word. We yield our wills and ask that you would shape them by uh, this word today. We yield our hearts and all of their affections and desires to you and pray that every one of them would be brought into conformity with your perfect will and we yield our minds to you, asking that you would cleanse them from every unrighteous thought and that you would replace all of that old, uh, sinful, dark thinking with light and life. So all that we are, we yield to you at this time and pray for your presence with us in Jesus' name, amen. I read a helpful article this week by an author named Joshua Becker. He's actually written uh, at least a book or two, I think, uh, concerning uh, becoming a minimalist, and that's a little bit of a trend in recent years Uh, as the cultural pendulum just swings from kind of one edge and extreme to the other. And it's a little bit of a reaction against the materialism that so many of us have grown up with or even become frustrated with. And he wrote an article titled, 21 Surprising Statistics That Reveal How Much Stuff We Actually Own. Now that's a long title, but that caught my eye. And it was written, I think it was actually written five years ago now, maybe even six. I won't read all 21 things, but I want to highlight a few things uh, that caught my eye. Uh, And it does help us, uh, actually I should say these are examples of of things uh, that we commonly know or experience or even practice that really raise the question, how much is enough? First of all, there are 300,000 items in the average American home. Some of you would say it's more than that. The second thing, the average size of the American home has nearly tripled in the last 50 years. The United States has upward of 50,000 storage facilities. And to put that in perspective, uh, that's more than five times the number of Starbucks that there are in the U.S. And give a little more uh, perspective, one out of every 10 Americans rent off-site storage. I won't ask for a show of hands here, but some of you are like, oh, yeah, this is uncomfortable already. Yeah, we haven't even read the Bible yet. <laughs> now, this is from a, a British, uh, r- some research that was done. It was published in the Telegraph, but Josh uh, includes it in his article. The average 10-year-old owns 238 toys, but plays with just 12 daily. And some of you parents are like, I know. And some of you grandparents are like, and it's still not enough for my precious little one. (laughs) And then this is remarkable. The average American throws away 65 pounds of clothing per year. 65 pounds. And that's just the average American. And so for every one of you who's like, I don't throw that much away. I keep everything, and that's why I have rented storage space. There's somebody else who doesn't rent storage space and throws away double. Yeah, how much is enough? Well, that's actually some of what Solomon is wrestling with. And, and our generation, like his generation, was looking for something. What are we looking for? And what does all this accumulated stuff reveal about our hearts? And to press in a little deeper, what are we missing? 
that we think if we have just one more toy or one more outfit or one more storage area or a few more square feet in the home or a little more money in the bank, then we'll be good. Well, Ecclesiastes 5, and we're going to actually pick up reading in verse 8 this week because we worked through verse 7 of the same chapter last week, is actually going to give us some perspective. So if your Bible is not already open to the Old Testament wisdom book, Ecclesiastes, go there now. If you're using one of the church Bibles from the seat rack in front of you, it's page 555. I'm actually going to read to the end of chapter 6 because there are a number of things here that go together. So once again, you follow along. This is the word of the Lord Please listen and open your heart. Solomon writes, If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income, This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There's a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is, he is the father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone else to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember or brood over the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun and it lies heavy on mankind, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity, it is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he, for it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, Do not all go to the one place. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is now It it is known what man is and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity, 
and what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? This is the word of the Lord. Now, lest you despair that we're going to have to go you know, word by word, phrase by phrase, uh, we're going to summarize in, in some big blocks. And that's part of the reason I read this whole passage because there are actually, I, I'm, I'm, there, there are multiple ways to organize this, but I'm going to try to organize it into three different sections, pie pieces, if you will, to give the one pie or perspective on money, wealth, possessions, and the good life. And then we're going to bring one really important piece of truth to bear upon all of those particular pieces of pie. So here we go. Look back at chapter 5 and verse 10, and here's big principle, oops, big principle number one. You will never be satisfied with money and wealth apart from God. The principle, I, I think, is what comes to us directly in verse 10. Solomon just says it straight up, doesn't he? You will not be satisfied. That is, you will, you will not find those appetites in your heart and soul sated. Not with loving money and wealth. And, and Solomon says plainly, this also is vanity. And, and that's a word we've encountered multiple times, and we will encounter it more times uh, as we study through the book of Ecclesiastes. It's futile, it's insubstantial, and in one sense you could say to love your money and to love your wealth is an absurd love. That's all loaded into this idea of it being vanity. The, the most famous billionaire, I, he is by the estimate of some the first billionaire, uh, certainly in the U.S., um, in, in U.S. history, uh, this is, what, a century old. John D. Rockefeller was famously asked once upon a time, how much money is enough? And uh, he calmly replied, apparently, just a little bit more. He's the living embodiment of what the Lord is telling us. And so Solomon states this principle, you'll never be satisfied with money and wealth in and of itself. And that's because money and wealth aren't loaded with the power to satisfy you. You're created for something else. We'll get to that in just a moment. But notice there's like a series of Proverbs that begin in 11 that illustrate this or, or prove the statement that Solomon is saying that you're not gonna be satisfied with money and wealth. Look at verse 11 where Solomon says in, in so many words, um, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. Well, what's he saying? Wealth can increase the wrong kind of attention. Proverbs 14.20 says, the poor is disliked even by his neighbor, but the rich has many friends. Isn't that interesting? If some of you have ever gone through a transition or you worked hard and then God blessed the labor of your hands and suddenly you were sitting on more resources than you knew what to do with and word got out, suddenly you've got all kinds of friends. Hey, would you consider supporting this work? Would you consider a donation here? You know, hey, brother, dear brother, we used to share a room, remember? Like, and, and suddenly you're like, where did all these people come from? Like, the word got out. Wealth can increase the wrong kind of in, uh, attention. Look at verse 12. Wealth may mean more to worry about. This is counterintuitive in many ways, but... Solomon simply says, sweet is the sleep of a laborer, 
just an ordinary day laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach, and, and you should know that in the Hebrew text, the word stomach is not actually there. It's been supplied to help us give a, a little deeper understanding or a little more personal understanding, but it simply says the fullness of the rich will not let him sleep. And what it seems to evidence is that he's got too much to worry about. How are my investments doing? How's the business going? Did, did the banker get the email that I sent him? And what's my advisor going to think when I call him tomorrow morning? Wealth can mean more to worry about. Here's a third one, verse 13. Wealth can be hoarded to a person's hurt. Some of you are old enough to remember the pain of 2008. If you had a 401k, you lost half of the value of your investments through no fault of your own. That's what's in view here. Wealth can be hoarded to a person's hurt, and then verse 14, wealth can be quickly lost in a bad venture. Look at verse 15. Wealth cannot protect from death. Rich, poor, big reputation, unknown, death comes for us all. And then I want you to look at verse 17 because to take just a a little moment here, this is written about a wealthy person, but wealth cannot protect from the pain of a wasted life. Look at this with me and and just note some of the terms that Solomon uses here. It's a pretty grim picture. Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. Now, there are some who think this might be tied to the loss of wealth. I'm not persuaded of that. I actually think that there there is more of, of metaphorical or poetical language being used here. He eats not in literal darkness, but he eats in obscurity. He doesn't possess the light of life. And the word vexation has to do with someone who's just always irritated, always greed, got all the money you could want, got all the wealth that you could ever ask for, but you can't enjoy it because there's, a, there's an irritation and agitation at the soul level that just won't let you rest. And the word sickness, it could be a physical impairment. That word is also used in the Old Testament just to refer to sadness. And there are some sadnesses that money can't buy you out of. And then the fourth term that Solomon uses is anger. There's a little bit of a semantic field, we call it. Synonyms that we might add to this word anger that can include bitterness, that it can include ill will. You know, the character, I think I mentioned this, I can't remember it was last week or the week before, but you think of Dickens' Christmas Carol and you start to feel like, man, this is Ebenezer Scrooge. Exactly. You will never be satisfied with money and wealth because money and wealth have not been created by God with inherent power within them to do the thing that some of us are asking them to do. And if you, if you set your affection on money and wealth and the, the accrual of it and you live your life 
for it, this last verse is exactly where you will end. It may take you a few decades to get there, but if money and wealth become the center of your life, the the sole affection, the motivating love of your soul, prepare to eat in darkness with much vexation and sickness and anger. Money and wealth just don't have the power to give your life the significance and meaning that you know deep in your soul you're created for. Now go to chapter 6. We're going to summarize verses 1 through 6. Here's a, another big principle, or even in the context of Ecclesiastes, remember he, he said, I'm going to give you nails that you can frame up your life with. So think of it maybe as nail number two. You will never enjoy life's good things apart from God. Now, now notice the description of this man. Some similarities to the first scenario that God set up, but look at verse 2 in particular, that God gives this man... Wealth, possessions, honor. He lacks nothing of all that he desires. Uh, Then this is comical, really. Verse three, if a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many. Some of you are like, man, I'm exhausted with a couple of kids. Um, Yeah, well, in the ancient Near East, the more children you had, the more blessed you were considered to be. So whether that's, you know, foreign to you, uh, or not, just know that in Solomon's context, people would read this and go, wow, that, that guy's blessed. And then he says in verse five, he lives a thousand years twice over. Lives to be 2,000 years old, hundreds of children, and yet something's missing, isn't it? Now, most of us would look at this guy's social media accounts in this day and age and go, oh, if only. Look, look at the vacation this, this guy just took his hundred children on. I mean, that's better than the one he took 500 years ago. And he just never ages. What's his secret? And every business he puts his hands on just turns to gold. Just call him Midas. And you'd scroll through page after page, child after child. You know, they're all like, you know, perfect genes and beautiful children and beautiful places and beautiful work and he's happily married and I mean it just kind of makes you sick to look at this guy right yeah look at verse 3 right in the middle of all this Solomon makes this really important note his soul is not satisfied with life's good things That is, despite all that he experiences and possesses, there's something missing. Derek Kidner writes in his commentary in Ecclesiastes, one could have the things men dream of, which in Old Testament terms meant children by the score and years of life by the thousand, and still depart unnoticed, unlamented, and unfulfilled. That's because life's good things in and of themselves cannot satisfy the true appetite in your soul. 
Now, the shocking comparison that Solomon puts forward in this passage is that it's better to be stillborn than to have prosperity without satisfaction. And he presses that painfully through a scenario that I know some of you live with every day. But, but here's the point. That stillborn baby actually finds rest, and this man clearly is not at rest. And that's because the good things of life that once upon a time he thought would give him rest don't have the power to give him rest. Now jump back to chapter 5 and and there's another repeated phrase that I want to draw your attention to. In verse 13 it first appears in this section, a grievous evil. Verse 16, a grievous evil. Chapter 6 verse 1, here's an evil that Solomon says he's observed. And then we come to the end of of verse 2, it is a grievous evil. Now when you see that phrase, you should not think that there's a moral evil underway that oh this is the explanation these guys that he's describing are are involved in evil activity of a of a moral nature they deserve god's judgment so of course they can't enjoy the good things no it's not actually a moral evil that is in view here he he's actually speaking of something that just causes great suffering something bad to experience and then in verse 2 among other places but right in the middle of this repetition of it's a grievous evil, a grievous evil, a grievous evil. He says this also is vanity. There's emptiness here. So what's gonna fill the emptiness? That's a great question for us, for us to ask, something really important. Let, let's jump to the third section. I wanna summarize this very quickly and then we'll get back to the really good stuff, important stuff. You will never be satisfied in life's business apart from God. Some of you, and and this is an honest statement, and it's a good, it's admirable statement. There's nothing inherently wrong with it, but some of you say, you know, I'm not all about money and wealth or or the experiences. I just love the chase. I mean, I feel exhilaration when I wake up in the morning and think about the business that's in front of me. Challenge of entrepreneurship or just the challenge of helping this, you know, company that I'm part of come back from the brink, or I I just love what I do. Now look at verse seven of chapter six. All the toil of man is for his mouth. That, that simply is reminding us that we work hard so that we can eat. Eating is really important. You don't live unless you eat. And so Solomon's just saying all the toil of man at the end of his days is just to sustain life. So that hard labor is important. That's not the problem, but here it comes. Look at the next phrase. Yet for this man, his appetite is not satisfied. And again, there, there's... There are all kinds of challenges when you're, when you're looking at the ancient languages like Hebrew uh, or Greek, but this particular term is translated in multiple other places, uh, the, the term for appetite is translated in multiple other places as soul. Appetite is a legitimate translation. I'm not trying to quarrel with that, but what I'm trying to demonstrate to you is we're not talking about the, the rumblings in your physical stomach that even now some of you are like, man, I should have had breakfast Rumble, rumble, rumble. No, we're talking about soul-level appetites. And these were created by God. Again, these are not inherently evil. So there's something, there's a, there's a deeper appetite in the soul that is driving this particular individual forward, and yet he's never satisfied. 
Solomon then asks a couple of questions. You know, what advantage does the wise man have over the fool? Both, both can be driven by the same kind of soul-level appetite. A poor man who has good manners, I mean, what advantage does he have? And we're, we're not gonna be able to dig in on, on those couple of, of thoughts in Proverbs. They do remind us, though, that all of us have appetites deep down within us that we're hungry, if not desperate, to satisfy. And verse 9 gives us a little interesting perspective on this. Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite or the wandering of the soul. Now I'm going to come back to the first part of that in just a couple of minutes, but this helps us to understand the man, the individual that, that Solomon is describing here. He's actually wandering. He's on this unending quest to find something because there's that gnawing inside. Love what I do, love the, the work that I get up to do every morning, but there's just something still missing. And that's true in all three of these scenarios. You love money and wealth, something missing there. You enjoy the good life, you can still be missing something. You can be wandering you know, through life, working hard, doing what you think you're supposed to do, and still be missing something and and it brings us to this point where we realize this is a restlessness deep within that will never be resolved externally and it even begins to press my own heart and it should press your heart to this big really important question does my soul have a home and some of us have packed a lot of stuff around our souls, whether it be money, wealth, work, relationships, experiences, vacations, all of that stuff. It's just packed around our souls, but there's still a vacant spot down in the middle of all that. And if you're willing to come face to face with that and admit it, you're in a really great position. But if some of you are, are just saying, well, I'll try a little harder, a little longer, Friend, just pause for a moment and listen to what the Lord is saying because he has good news for us. Now go back to chapter 5 and verse 18. Solomon just steps right into the middle of this and says, Behold, that is pay attention to this. Take note of this. What I have seen to be good and fitting, good and beautiful, fitting is the same uh, it, it's an English word, but it, it, it's translating the same word we encountered back in chapter three. God makes all things beautiful in its time. God makes all things fitting. He's saying, what I've seen to be good and beautiful is to eat and drink and find enjoyment. And remember, I told you we can also understand that little phrase, find enjoyment, as see the good. See the good. In all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Look at verse 20. God keeps this particular individual occupied with joy in his heart. Skip to chapter 6 and verse 2. God gives wealth and possessions. God does not give him the power to enjoy them. And in these few lines right here almost in the middle of this wisdom book that Solomon has written, six times 
he makes reference to God giving or not giving, and now we begin to understand the, the real secret of life. And so it, it's real simple. Life itself is a gift from God. This is not the first time we've seen it. But in giving us life, he also calls us to see the good. Go back to verse 18. I I want you to look at that. It is good and fitting to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all his toils. See the good in all that you do. Can you see the good in your hard work this morning? Such a variety of vocations that are represented here this morning. It's really quite remarkable. And some of you love your work and some of you are looking for other things. You're just kind of patiently biding your time like I got to put food on the table so... You know, I, I hope it's not the career I'll be in the rest of my life, but, but so many of you work hard and you work in a variety of settings from construction to counseling and some of you are computer geeks and you code all day long and some of you teach coding and, and uh, work in that whole realm of IT and there are accountants and administrators and there are salespeople and some of you in the service industry and, and a whole bunch of you are parenting and doing childcare and I mean, just a hard working group. But one of the things you begin to see, look at the end of verse 18, while God's calling you to just go about your ordinary days and see the good in all your toil, Solomon reminds us, and this is really the Lord's thought for us, what you are doing at the moment, you can actually rest in this truth. It's your lot. It's your assignment. It doesn't necessarily mean you're permanently assigned there, so if you're like, oh, great, I hate my job, so this must be a spiritual problem with me. No, no, like, you're free to go look for other work, but at the same time, where the Lord's gonna take us so beautifully is to say, "Don't, don't be looking for some dream life, some ideal that you miss the beauty of what's happening right where you are in this moment. Life is a gift from God. And you don't have to be wealthy or well-known to live the good life, but you do have to be in right relationship with the God who created you and sent his son to be the savior of our world. Now here's the second truth. God's gift, gifts, require the right batteries. You say, what? We didn't read about batteries in here. Oh, you did, actually. Just updated the translation of it. Look at verse 19. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them. There it is. That's what's missing for some of you. You're ignoring God's power, thinking that you can fire it up on your own. Did you ever get a great Christmas gift, you know, that you had hoped and prayed for and even, you know, connived and and schemed for in the weeks leading up to Christmas, and Christmas morning you rushed down, and there under the tree was the box that was the exact dimensions, and you knew this is it, and you didn't want to shake it because it was too precious, and and you were thrilled, and and for weeks you had dreamed and prayed and hoped, you know, for the super-duper XTR 9000 whatchamahoozits, and and to have that gift was going to be life-changing, and you begin to unwrap the present, and sure enough, as you're tearing paper away 
from the front of the box. It really is the XTR 9000 watch a Mahuzet, and joy fills your soul, and you're overwhelmed to the point where you're almost numb. You can't feel your fingertips any longer, and as you continue to unwrap it with great delight and then open the box and, and you, you know, cut those little twisty ties that hold it in there, rubber bands or whatever secured it, and you bring it out, and, and you flip it over because you know where the power switch is, and you hit the switch, and nothing happens. And, and you're like, what, mom or dad or whoever, grandpa, grandma, what? And you turn the box over and down in the left corner, printed in bold red letters, three critical words, batteries not included. And you realize as glorious as this gift is, without power, it's not going to be a good Christmas. And, you know, in the good old days, the world shut down on Christmas, and you couldn't go to Maverick or Walmart and get a package of batteries. It was agony if you were powerless on Christmas, even with the gift of your dreams in front of you, because no batteries. And some of you are trying to live a life that God created you for, but yet because you continue to say, no, God, no, God, no, God, no, God, he's withholding the power. And it's his love, actually, because he wants you to realize you're not created for money, for wealth, for the good things of life, and for the pursuit of, of your dreams in the workplace. No, you're not designed for those things to happen apart from him. It actually is his design that you would experience joy in life. And the text even says it for us in in verse 18. His intention is to give you power to enjoy the gifts themselves, the power to accept your divine assignment. That's what your lot is. The power to rejoice in your work. Solomon says, this is the gift of God. But some of you continue to live life even saying out loud, there's no God. I'm not accountable to him. I don't believe in him. And then you wonder why there's this emptiness in the middle of everything you've put your hand to. God's gifts require his batteries. Number three, God's gifts used with God's power produce joy. Look at verse 20. Here's the promise. This individual that God blesses with things and experiences and whatnot, this individual comes to a very different place in his life than the, than, the, than the Scrooge character we encountered earlier who's eating in darkness and just perpetually vexed and bitter and angry. Look at this guy. He will not re- much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. And, and the word remember conveys the idea of as he thinks back on his life, he won't brood over it. That's where the Scrooge character is living out his days. Still frustrated that things are empty, angry, bitter. There's ill will in his heart toward family members and friends and just kind of like generally mad at the world. That's because he was trying to live the life God created him for without God at the center of it. But here's a person, and it doesn't even say he had great wealth and riches and all kinds of you know, magical moments in his life. It just says that he won't brood over the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. He's found the secret. 
Derek Kidner writes, we catch a glimpse of the man for whom life passes swiftly, not because it is short and meaningless, but because by the grace of God, he finds it utterly absorbing. Here's the difference. You come to the table for a meal, and if you're looking for ultimate meaning and satisfaction and and substance of life in the food itself, you're gonna be disappointed. But if you come to your table thankful that God gave you life, that your heart beats by his kind, sovereign power, that your lungs actually process the necessary oxygen to live and exhale the stuff that would kill you if it built up in your lungs, and everything else that happens just for you to have existence, and you sit down at the table in right relationship with your God and gratitude, then the, the most humble meal that's in front of you is a gift. And then when God in his kindness expands your taste buds and exposes you to a variety of spices and ingredients and ethnic foods and flavors and all that, you're like, this is amazing. Kristen served tikka masala Thursday night. It's so good. Little basmati rice that she doctored up in some other ways. We finished well, we had leftovers yesterday. Was there still some left? Like, would there be maybe one little portion? Oh, isn't that cool? But if you come putting all your hopes and dreams that the you know, chicken tikka masala is gonna have some spiritual experience for you and, and bring you to this place of nirvana, oh, prepare to be disappointed. Because your soul is created to find that in God, not the dish. It's the same with relationships. Some of you came to marriage hoping that marriage would be the, the be-all and end-all and that you could finally find yourself. And initially, you know, you maybe even got married under the delusion that this is your soulmate and the one who will make your life significant. And then you get into marriage and it's like it's really hard and this person I married, I mean, I love her, but man, she's not perfect and there's a lot of weird stuff going on here and I just don't understand that. Please, somebody help me explain. And then after you've been married five or ten years, the person changes and, and you were changing too. But you have these, these ideals and dreams about what marriage should be and it just kind of all starts not falling apart, literally, but you're like, what's happening? Well, you weren't created for marriage as the end all. You're created for God. But when you're in right relationship with God, then even the hard moments of marriage, he sanctifies and protects and blesses and guides you through them and and brings you through the hard stuff and teaches you more of what it means to repent daily and to extend forgiveness eagerly and all kinds of great things that God is doing so that you say, oh, I am so blessed and I have a wonderful marriage. But I'm not asking my marriage to give my soul the stuff that only God gives to a soul. You can do it with tikka masala, you can do it with marriage, you can do it with money, you can do it with wealth, you can do it with trips to the you know, amusement park or shopping sprees, you can do it with a thousand things, a thousand things that would even fall under the, the heading of God's good gifts, but the gifts can never be a replacement for God. Finally, go back to verse nine of chapter six. A better life. And I choose better intentionally because it's actually not the best life. You know when the best life is? Heaven, eternity. But the better life 
and this is in comparison to the life you dream of having, the better life is right in front of you. That's what verse nine is about. Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. Some of you are dreamers to the point where you are actually missing really good things that God has right in front of you. You're always wanting a better version of yourself, your marriage, your house, your car, your job, your family, whatever it is, always hoping for something better. And God is saying, open your eyes, look at what's right in front of you. You see, at the heart of discontentment is a soul that is homeless, a soul that is wandering. And God is actually standing in front of all of us today going, I'll be your home. I'm actually the only home for your soul. Come to me. He's calling you today to lay down this endless quest for meaning and satisfaction and fulfillment and come to him in faith. He knows you're tired. He knows you're empty. He knows you're full of sadness and frustration and anger at this moment and he's designed all of those things like those goads we've been talking about through the series in Ecclesiastes to get you moving the right direction and the right direction is to him. And beautifully, he's given us a visual aid today. This table. What this table represents is the offer of his son. See, God created you and designed you to be in intimate relationship with him. And sin just shattered all of that. There's no way for us back to God that runs along the lines of our hard work and our effort and our, the, the expenditure of our wealth or our resources or our promises to him. No, the way back to him is Jesus. That's why Jesus said, I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And the table is this beautiful visual image today. And and here it is laden with bread and drink. Physically, the bread will give you a little nourishment. It's hardly a meal, but it's symbolic. That's why we don't do the big banquet here. But it's symbolic of, of the nourishment that Jesus is for the soul. He even told us straight up, I'm the bread of life. You eat me, You drink of me, you'll never hunger or thirst again. Some of you have enjoyed that offer. You know exactly what Jesus means, and you're so eager even today to come to the table again just as a a reminder that Jesus is life. Some of you have never come to him in that way. Oh, you've participated at the Lord's table before as a spiritual ritual. It gives you feeling of like maybe you were really spiritual today and I think it's the right thing to do and we know God ordained it and it honors him so I hope I did the right thing but you never actually come to this table as a needy guest. You've never come even as a visible demonstration of your absolute dependence upon the broken body of Jesus as the payment for your sins. And you've never taken this cup as a profession of your absolute dependence upon the shed blood of Jesus for the full forgiveness of your sins. It's just been kind of a spiritual ritual. Oh, my friend, let today be a different day. Lay down this endless quest 
find your meaning, your satisfaction, your fulfillment in every other thing. And let this be the day where you come and say, God, I need you. I need your son. I need the salvation you offer. I need the forgiveness of sins and cleansing that comes through him alone. That's what this table is about.